1943, according to his own word, George Ritchie joined the U.S. Army to stop Nazis. But he never even got out of Camp Berkeley, Texas, before he died. He was 43. He was uh, preparing to go away to medical school for the Army. And he himself contracted a virus that was serious enough that he was brought in, his lungs filled up, and before the end of the day, he flatlined. There's evidence of this, uh, the records that indicate that he did in fact flatline, but he flatlined only for nine minutes. And what a remarkable nine minutes they were. He describes in several books that he wrote years later some of his experiences in his I don't know what you want to call it, near life, or excuse me, near death experience or after death experience. Now, Richie wasn't an ordinary guy. He actually came back to life nine minutes after flatlining, ended up going on to medical school, became a psychiatrist, and actually chaired several different psychiatric departments at large organizations, including hospitals. And he was actually the founder and president of what became the Peace Corps in the U.S. Thirty-some-odd years after he flatlined, he couldn't get his experience out of his mind. And so he wrote a book, uh, Letters from Tomorrow. He describes an after-death experience that's been commonly told by others. Tens of thousands have experienced something like this where he saw a bright light, something of a tunnel. He could feel himself flying around unfettered by any weight. He visited sections of Texas and said eventually he discovered that he must have gone somewhere in Louisiana because sometime later he went there and recognized everything. But he said the most remarkable thing was he could see himself on the table. They actually pulled the sheet up over his face and were preparing a toe tag for him. When suddenly he said, I found myself in a room, a bright room, and everything I had ever done, everything I ever had been, was right there in front of me. And in came, he said, the Son of God. So bright, he said, that I know natural eyes could not have perceived him. He said, as we stood there and chatted, a couple of things became obvious to me. One of them, he said, is that the Lord loves me more than I could ever have imagined. And then he said two things struck him, and he writes these in his book. I don't know what the next life will be like, he says. Whatever I saw was only from the doorway, so to speak, but it was enough to convince me from that moment on that consciousness does not cease with physical death. Instead, it becomes more vivid, and you become more aware than ever. And second, how we spend our time on earth is vastly more important than we could ever imagine. Well, a couple of months ago when I got my diagnosis, our sermon planning team put together a series and their invitation to me was just plug in whenever you are able to preach on these Sundays. And it just so happens that this is the text today, the idea of what happens when you die, resurrection. I'm honored to be able to do this sermon. I have to say that um, it's a strange sermon for me to do. I want to apologize to you guys that I missed two weeks ago. I preached two weeks ago on the crucifixion of Jesus. I actually was feeling fine. I had just had some treatments for my cancer. And by Sunday night, that night, I had uh, developed a reaction to the treatments. Uh, so my body had broken into hives. My throat had swollen shut. You can kind of hear it even now. It's, 
It's a little, is it scratchy or sketchy? It's one of the two. Anyway. And next thing I know, the next day I was in with the doctor and they're trying to figure out what to do with the throat. And then I was down at Vanderbilt and somewhere in the course of the week, Julie and I both contracted COVID. So when it rained, it poured and I'm wearing a mask at uh, this service for you, not for me. I'm past my quarantine, but CDC wants me to protect you. So I'll be wearing a mask. But as I thought about the sermon, I just thought, oh my goodness, there's just so much for us to think about in the subject of the resurrection. And the reason that Richie's book has sold hundreds of thousands of copies is because it built into all of us is the sense that this life cannot be all there is. We, we know that intuitively. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. It's built into our genetics, our DNA, that we know this life is not all there is. What do we make of all the near-death or after-death experiences? Well, as Christians, we ought to believe it, right? That's a cornerstone of the Christian faith. How much is subjective? How much was imagined? How much was the result of all sorts of chemical uh, imbalances releasing at the moment of death? I don't know that, but here's what I do know. I know that the resurrection promised by God through Jesus Christ is the securest hope any human will ever have. Jesus defines his ministry as a ministry of resurrection. When speaking to Martha over the death of Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if they die. So when I preached two weeks ago on the cross, I wanted to make this case. When the early church went out and conquered the Roman world, and it was quite a conquer, 120 believers in Acts, the second chapter. And within a matter of a couple of centuries, there were no fewer than 50 million believers across the Roman Empire. When they went out and conquered the world, there were two messages, well, I should say two angles of one message, that rocked the world. The first was the message of the cross. For in the cross, the central event of human history, we are finally given access to the Lord God Almighty. He cannot have communion with people who are unholy, who are stained, who are burdened by shame and guilt and sinfulness. And the cross is God's way of dealing with my sin. And so the cross opens me up to a relationship with God. It's the same message today as it was 2,000 years ago. And that is, if you want a life that has a real purpose, a life that really is blessed, a life that really is happy, You'll only get it through relationship with Jesus. And that comes because of the cross. He paid my debt. But if that's the case, the central, the central event of history, the central event of our future is nothing other than the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, God assures you, nothing will ever defeat you. Nothing will defeat you. And that's why when the early church went out preaching, they preached this cornerstone message, the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. It really does resolve all human problems. I now have a fellowship with the Lord God of all the universe, and I have a future that cannot be denied, will not be canceled, it cannot be taken away. When you read from the book of Acts, you see these two themes constantly preached in the sermons of the early church, the cross and the resurrection. The text that was selected for me, and this is the last in the series, so I think I'll add a sermon next week, God willing. The text that was selected for me is Acts chapter 13. You might want to open up a Bible to Acts 13. I'm not going to read the whole speech, but it's one of the first missionary speeches 
in all of human history, that is Christian missions, where we actually have missionaries out preaching to people who have some vague idea of who Jesus is and what he was known for, but don't really have the gospel just yet. We start at chapter 13 and verse 1. The church was meeting in Antioch. There are actually two Antiochs in Acts chapter 13. One is the, the big Antioch. That's this Antioch in verse 1. It's the one that became a very prominent city uh, in the early Christian movement. It's in, today it's on the border between Syria and Turkey today. There's a smaller city called Antioch where Acts 13 ends up. And we'll go there in just a moment. So they're in church. Look, they're worshiping, they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, I have a mission for Paul and Barnabas. They anoint them, they lay hands on them, and they send them out to do their mission. Now, as they do their mission, they pass through what we would call, these are verses 14 and 15, what we would call central Turkey. So they leave the big Antioch. By the way, the city Antioch was built by Antiochus. So when he built the city, he would often name it after himself. He was one of the generals for Alexander the Great. Paul and Barnabas visit the central section of Turkey where they're planting churches. And when Paul gets here, he is invited to speak at a synagogue, and he takes the opportunity, and there he proclaims the cross. You want to guess what else? Because I've already hinted at it now about eight times. And the resurrection. Those are the two things that he wants to talk about, the cross and the resurrection. I do think it's worth noting for a moment that um, there were a lot of things Paul could have talked about, but those were the two he picked. I want to come back to that in a second. If you were to find yourself in a missionary setting, and you should every day, by the way, would you pick the cross and the resurrection? Is that how you would start? Because that's what Paul does. So I'll pick up and read a few verses beginning at verse 26 of chapter 13. And here's how Luke, who's the chronicler of Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, describes it, beginning at verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, so this is the crowd in the synagogue, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. So you see the cross and now the resurrection. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses. Witnesses of the resurrection. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. I just want to pause and say, I suggested early on, these are two sides of the same coin. The resurrection and the cross are the good news. The good news of the cross is I finally have access to a life with God because my sins are washed away. And the good news of the resurrection is I have a hope that cannot be defeated. Not even death could stop it. Nothing can stop it. And so Paul says, this is good news. Going down to verse 38, I want you to know that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. It is worth reminding ourselves that the central message of the preaching of the early church, the message that conquered the Roman world, was a message built on the the cross, the meaning of the cross, and the meaning of the resurrection. Let me underscore that and just maybe tease out why that may be, may be so important. I just want you to notice that when Paul preaches here, he doesn't mention the Beatitudes. 
Think about it a moment. Beatitudes central to the Sermon on the Mount, central to the Christian way of life. But Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't even mention the greatest command. You remember Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest command? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul doesn't preach that. There were a lot of biblical doctrines that Paul could have focused on when he was preaching in this missionary context. Instead, he picked two things. One, Jesus was crucified so you could be right with God. And two, God raised him from the dead so you can be raised from the dead. And I want to claim that again and say to us that all the things of the Scripture are important. Every Scripture is from God. Every Scripture is from the Word of God. But the fundamentals of the Christian message are that I can be made right with God through the death of Jesus. And I have a hope that cannot be taken away through his resurrection. So the early church testified about the resurrection of Jesus. It was central to their preaching. Paul even goes so far as to say, if the dead aren't raised, Christ wasn't raised. If Christ wasn't raised, your faith is empty. And if, you're, if Christ wasn't raised, you are to be pitied for being here on a Sunday morning. Which is really worth uh, repeating. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, and if you do not have a hope that will survive even death, you are wasting a beautiful Sunday morning. I wouldn't be here if I were you, if I didn't believe it. And so in Scripture, we're taught that resurrection becomes a cornerstone for who we are. But I've noticed through the years, resurrection is a difficult subject for many of us. Under the teachings of none other than the, one of the founders of Western philosophy, Plato, teacher of Aristotle, student of Socrates. Plato actually argued at one point that, um, rather consistently I should say, not really one point, that the body is somehow defective and the soul is, Plato would say, imprisoned in the body. And by the way, you, you can understand that maybe. Um, I think if you're young and stout and everything's going your way, then you may not think that much about how the body and the mind relate. But if you start to have failings with your body, it's not that difficult to think, I wish, my, I wish my mind or my soul or my spirit were set free from this body. So I've had three surgeries since April, and uh, I'm a typical man. I just say this to you women, I, this is my, I say this with sincere um, love, but even the most beautiful woman looks in the mirror and says, it's not, it's just not right yet. But I don't know a single man who doesn't look in the mirror and say, yep, that's exactly the me I want. That's just who we are as men. And since I've had the surgeries, I have to tell you, I don't even want to see myself in the mirror. I have no fewer, I encountered them, no fewer than 11 incisions on me in the last three months. And I have to say, there is a little bit of me says, I, I would like to be released from this. It feels a bit like a prison at times, the body. And the church absorbed that teaching. So much so that oftentimes we tend to think that the resurrection has nothing to do with the body. It is only the immortality of the soul. But that's not biblical. Not only is it not biblical, it's actually a heresy that in Scripture, resurrection is not the immortality of the soul. It is true that your soul lives on. When you die, when we bury someone we love, their soul continues on even though the body doesn't. But that's not the resurrection. That's the immortality of the soul. That's a different doctrine. Resurrection also doesn't mean reincarnation. That is, this doctrine that sometimes sneaks in from the East. That resurrection doesn't mean your soul will inhabit some other body 
whether it's a human body or some other kind of body. That's not what resurrection is. And furthermore, resurrection is not simply resuscitation. Now, sometimes in the Bible, resurrection might just mean resuscitation. The old body comes back to life. But you need to understand that in Scripture, that's not what resurrection really means. In Scripture, resurrection is the receiving of the soul back into a renewed and glorious body that never dies. Resurrection means the soul and the body get to live. Think about how many times the New Testament talks about the body. And by the way, this is great news. God created us embodied creatures. That's one reason why gender matters. I was made to be a male. I will always be a male. I will be a male at the resurrection. That bodies aren't incidental to being humans. They're necessary to being humans. Bodies are good things, not bad things. They just get broken sometimes for all sorts of reasons. So when Jesus is crucified, Matthew says, Matthew alone, by the way, in the gospel says that upon the death of Jesus, the bodies of many people got up from their graves and were raised to life. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says the whole creation is waiting for the end of time. By the way, this is another beautiful thing. We just don't have time to go into all of it. But it is not just this body that will be raised from the dead. It is the whole creation that is raised in a renewed, glorious body. All of creation is waiting for the resurrection, he says, while we are anticipating what? The redemption of our souls? No, the soul never died. It's the redemption of the body that God is going to accomplish at the resurrection. He will take the soul of me and the soul of you and the soul of those precious people we buried even recently. And he'll bring it back to a renewed and glorious body, one that doesn't get old, one that doesn't suffer, one that doesn't have to have surgeries, one that doesn't cry, one that's strong, one that's renewed. When asked the question, Paul, when asked the question, what's that new body going to be like? Paul, he struggles to describe it. Here are a few of his words. He says, well, this body's perishable. It's mortal, but the next body will be imperishable. This body, he says, it's dishonorable. That is, it gets dirty. It gets all messed up. The next one's going to be a body of glory. This body, he says, it's got a lot of weakness to it. It's falling apart. The next one's going to be full of power. This body, it's a natural body. The next one's going to be a spiritual body. I tried to think, what's a good way to describe it? Because it's just such a truncated and in so many ways such an impoverished view to think about death as I die, go to heaven, and the body was a, a mistake the whole time. Your body's not a mistake. It's a gift from God. You were created to live in a body. So what's a good analogy? And I came up with one, find it goofy if you will, but this is it. You will be buried one day or cremated or who knows? God knows what will happen. But when Jesus Christ returns, it's not just that you're going to have a disembodied soul, as I've often said, flitting around from cloud to cloud in an unending church service, which again, as I've said, does not sound like heaven to me. No, that's not what's going to happen. The body that was sown in a grave or is in an urn now or wherever it happens to be, drowned at sea, it will come out of Superman's body, like Jesus' body, full of glory, full of strength. You'll be 18 again and beautiful. Nothing will stop you. You'll have all the strength that Jesus had upon his resurrection. Remember, he could walk through walls. Nothing could stop him. That's the doctrine of the resurrection in the New Testament. That's why Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. 
I'm more a citizen of heaven than anything else. I love my country, but I'm first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And he says we are waiting. We're waiting for him to come and transform what? Our souls? No. We're waiting for him to come and transform our lowly bodies so they will become like his glorious body. You're going to be put in a grave one day, and then you're going to hear the voice of God, the trump of the archangel, and you're going to rip your shirt off and come out Superman. It's going to be awesome. I mean, it is. Your pets will be there. <laughs> your pets will be there. I'm guessing there's going to be some amazing golf course or something. I don't know what it is. What I know is the Bible describes in such phantasmal language that all you can say is this is going to be awesome. And when John raises the question, what will our bodies be like? He says, oh, we don't know yet. We don't know. All we know is that our bodies will be like his. That's resurrection. It is a reunion of the soul with a renewed, glorious body. One, this time that never dies. And so to talk about resurrection, at least for me, raises a question of sequence. What, what to expect? I have to tell you, I, I get confessional. I'm probably too confessional anyway, but lately I've felt emotional enough to be more confessional than I ought to be. But I had to miss two funerals the last couple of weeks because of this. By the way, it, I do want to say my cancer has not been the problem. The treatments, I just had some reactions to the treatments. So the good news is we've adjusted the treatments and I expect to be back to normal really soon. But I had to miss two funerals of two people I really love. And even as I was working on the sermon, I wanted to say, let me tell you what's going to happen. It's going to happen to each of us. It's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to all of us. This is the sequence. This is what's going to happen. This is what the resurrection guarantees, what it promises. First, every one of us is going to die. So it is not just those who are old or those who live a high-risk life or those who've had some sort of frightening diagnosis. All of us die. The Bible's pretty clear about this, but you don't have to have a Bible to know that, do you? That it is appointed for us once to die, and then after that comes the judgment. So when we die, your soul leaves your body. That's why the body is still and pallid and doesn't move. And it will be that way until Jesus returns. The body will. And so the body goes into decay. In fact, in the very sermon I looked at, Acts chapter 13, Paul makes the contrast between King David and King Jesus that he says about King David, you can visit his tomb. It's still there. By the way, I've been to King David's tomb. It's still there. Now, I want you to know without insulting anybody, those of you who really trust it, I don't know that that's David's tomb, but I do know that for about 3,000 years, it's been called David's tomb. And Paul says in his sermon, but his body's decayed. You can go in there. The body's still laying in there. The difference between that and Jesus is you can't find his body because his body was raised back. God put it this way when Adam and Eve sinned. He said, I made you out of dirt. And now because you're a sinner, I'm going to return you to the dirt. So when we die, the soul goes to be in Hades. That's our second point. And the body sees decay. So what is Hades? Well, the Bible simply presumes the existence of a place it calls Hades. The word Hades means a place you can't see, unseen. Hades is the waiting area for all human souls. Hades is the waiting area for all human souls. When you die, your body lies in state, but your soul immediately goes to Hades. And in fact, the Bible talks about Hades as having two waiting rooms. It's kind of important. I'm doing a fast sermon, so you may not get how important it is, but there are two waiting rooms in Hades. Here's 
a very short summary of them. Luke chapter 16, where Jesus is telling the story of the rich man of Lazarus. When the Lazarus, who is the righteous man in the story, dies, he goes to a place called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. That is, in Hades, there's one waiting area for people who love Jesus. And they go and wait there. What are you waiting for, by the way? You're waiting for the resurrection because it hasn't happened yet. There's a second waiting room in Hades, and it's called in this text, torment. This is where people who don't want to follow Jesus go. They go and they wait in torment for the resurrection and the final day of judgment. You should know that people are aware. So I just want to say this. When we bury our beloved or cremate our beloved or lose our beloved at sea or whatever it is, they instantly become aware. So George Ritchie's description of what he experienced is an accurate description. We know this because the Bible talks about people who have not yet experienced a final resurrection but are aware of what's going on. Here's just one case, Revelation 6, where in the book of Revelation, the seven seals are being popped at the beginning of the book. And one of the seals reveals an image in heaven where all those who have died but have not yet been raised from the dead are watching what's happening on planet earth and saying, Lord, when are you going to do something about what's going on? And the Lord says, you need to wait just a little bit longer. I'm not ready for the day of resurrection yet. So our deceased friends and family members, they're alert and they're awake. Their souls are still alive and they're waiting for something. They're waiting for the resurrection the renewed body, the glorious body, the final day, the day of judgment, the return of Jesus. And you should also know about Hades that there's going to be a day where there will be no Hades. That is, God's going to get rid of it one day. He won't need it anymore. When the resurrection occurs, there won't need to be, you won't have to have a waiting room anymore. And so death and Hades will be thrown into a lake of fire. They will be over. So the souls of those we love who have departed the bodies, are in a place called Hades waiting for the resurrection. Right now they're waiting. By the way, that's a little bit, there's times that's kind of a, a, a serious thought, isn't it? I mean, I, my mind goes directly to my mother who passed away in 2002. Mama sees everything I do. And I, I would like to think she's having a glass of tea a few times during the day and not noticing me because I don't always do the right thing. But this is what the Bible teaches. This is how it unfolds. And again, tens of thousands of near-death or I would say after-death experiences, some of which, by the way, you've experienced. We have members at North Boulevard who've had these experiences, who've testified to them, are accurate. That is, the soul doesn't die. It continues on. Third, Jesus returns at the end of time and he destroys the earth as we know it. This again is permeates the New Testament. How many times we're told in the New Testament that Jesus is going to come back? The end of time is on its way. By the way, this whole sense that time is moving towards a culminating point has so woven itself into Western civilization that even when people deny Jesus, we still have to have an apocalypse, don't we? That's why we like zombie movies. I'm not denying climate change. I don't not deny, but one reason why it's such a big deal in people's mind is because we've already been acclimated to thinking that history is going to end in some big Armageddon. We got all that from the Christian message. You should know other cultures don't think that way. They're not thinking about a final Armageddon, the end of time. That's a Christian way to think about time. And it comes because Jesus says repeatedly, I'm going to return. I'm not done yet. 
when he ascended to heaven, all the apostles were standing there in Jerusalem, just on the top of Mount Olives. And Jesus goes up into the sky and angels show up and they say, why are you looking up there? Jesus who went that way is going to come back exactly the same way. As 1 Thessalonians says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And after that, we who are still alive will rise up and meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Or as Paul puts it, excuse me, Peter puts it in 2 Peter, when the Lord comes, he'll come as surprisingly as a thief comes. And he will cause the whole creation to go up in flames. It'll be a new creation, which leads us to our next point. At the resurrection, when Jesus returns, your soul will be joined to a renewed, glorious body. If that's a hard message for you to swallow, chew on it. Because it's great news. It means I'm not an accident. That God cares about my body. He cares about planet Earth. He cares about physical things. He created physical things. He loves us. I will always have a body. The good news is the body I will receive at the resurrection is one that will never have cancer again. The body I get at the resurrection will never grow old. They put me on uh, steroids, which make me blow up. Mama had to live on prednisone her last 10 years of life. And poor Mama just, she just swelled and swelled and swelled. And that's also not fun to look in the mirror. It's like, man, where'd this gut, how'd this thing come back? You may not notice a difference, but I can tell. Not, not at the resurrection. It's a new and glorious body. Forever 18. Forever 18. And so the soul is rejoined, to put it again in biblical language. The time, or the original language says, the hour is coming. When all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. How many cemeteries are there in Rutherford County? I have no idea. Maybe several hundred. Certainly several hundred when you include family plots and whatnot. Do you know the day's going to come when every single one of those graves opens up? Every urn that you might be holding that holds the, the treasure of a loved one is going to collapse. And God will reconstitute now in a glorious renewed way. Bodies that are immortal, celestial, spiritual, that will never die, never get sick, never grow old. He's going to call us out of our graves. That song, so last week I was supposed to preach this sermon when I got all that happened to me. And I had asked uh, the, the worship team, would you sing the song? Um, see, I can't even remember the song. I asked, I'll run out of that grave. Yeah, how's that go? What? That's it? Yeah, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Y'all, you know the song we started singing it a year or so ago? You call my name, and I ran out of that grave. Yep, okay. Whew, sketchy. Well, I asked us to sing that song. I think the song's probably more about the cross than it is the resurrection because it's a statement that I was trapped in my sin and God called me out of my sin. That's probably what it's really about. But I love that song, and I love thinking about the resurrection because it just reminds me that when Jesus Christ returns and the trumpet call of God is blasted forth on that shofar, that trumpet, There are going to be an awful lot of people you hadn't seen in a lot of years kicking down those graves. And they're going to come out. And they're going to come out with glorious, renewed bodies to a glorious, renewed creation. To the way it was always intended to be. A garden of Eden itself. That's what God holds out for us. That's why the resurrection is such a powerful message. Because it says nothing, not even death, nothing is going to stop me.
Nothing is. He said a day when he will judge the world, Paul preaches in Acts 17. Or Philippians 2, every knee is going to bow down to Jesus on this day. Every tongue is going to confess him. Or 2 Corinthians 5, each one of us will stand before the judgment bar of God and we will give an account of what we have done in our lives. There will be nobody who misses the day of judgment. Everybody will be there, everybody. And each of us will give an account for the things we've done while we were alive. I want to make sure that you understand this. You are not saved by your works. The text doesn't say you'll be saved by what you did. You're saved by the grace of God, but you are judged by your works. Because God is a just judge, and he pays attention to what we're doing. By the way, that is really good news. Because if you're, if you're thinking about the end of time and you, you start stressing over the idea of hell, let me just remind you of something. Jesus' death covers the exact sin that you are currently thinking disqualifies you from heaven. Whatever sin you might be thinking, when you say to yourself, man, I would hate to have to face God right now, that's the sin that the blood of Jesus cleanses. There's no sinner too far from him, and there's no sin so bad that he won't forgive it. And so we don't have to think to ourselves, well, I haven't been good enough. We're not saved by our goodness. If we were depending on our own goodness for salvation, we would all be in hell. We depend on the blood of Jesus. And so the cross... The resurrection, intimately tied in this one word, gospel. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the Bible wraps it up pretty simply. If you are unforgiven, you get what you wanted. I want to say this one more time. Jesus, by the way, Jesus mentions hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. Jesus does. I've said this off and on through the years preaching. I haven't said it in a little bit. Here's what heaven and hell, or I would say the new creation and hell, here's what they have in common. Each of them has something in common with the other. This is really important. Whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, you're going where you wanted to go. You're going where you wanted to go. Because those who are raised to, to everlasting life are going to what they lived for, a life with Jesus. And those who said, I'm going to do it my way. This is all about me. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to do what I think I ought to do. Hell is you getting that for the rest of eternity. Fine. You and everybody else who wanted to do it your way, go for it. It's yours now. That neither heaven nor hell in some sense are punishment, but instead each is simply the consequence of that for which you always lived. And so the Bible speaks frequently about this place called hell, several different texts. My clicker just died on me, fellas. We may need a, Sean, can you grab somebody up there? Might, I don't know if it's me or if it's a, oh, there we go. It's a, it just woke up. It's waking up fast. Look at just a couple of texts. Jesus warns us, don't be concerned about those who can only kill the body but can't kill the soul, but instead be concerned about those who can kill what? The soul and the body. Remember, we're talking about after the resurrection in a place called hell. Hell, by the way, was simply the landfill of Jerusalem. That's why the Bible talks about the worm dying not there. Maggots were there. It was just a landfill. And there was always a fire there because they were always burning their trash. And so Jesus just says, that's the metaphor. That's the model. That's what it's like when you say, I don't want to be in the city of God. Fine, we'll put you out in the trash heap. If you like maggots, I'll let you have them. Revelation also describes this. It says that if your name's not found written in the book of life, 
you're just thrown into the trash. And by the way, I do want to make sure we understand, we deserve the trash, but there will be nobody in hell who didn't live to get there. Nobody. A place of blazing fire and everlasting destruction. And then, of course, we must end with this one which is those who stand forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ, not because of any good that I have done, but because of the blood of Jesus, we'll find ourselves in a new creation. So, what did I say, phantasmal? Is that a word? Because if it's not, somebody put that in a dictionary. So phantasmal that the Bible can't even describe it. The lion lying with the lamb. The, the, the crop's so bountiful that the guy who is harvesting is walking on the heels of the guy who's planting. Wine flowing again from the mountains. Old men picking up their walkers and throwing them away and coming in rejoicing. Young women coming in from the four corners of planet Earth, dancing to the tambourines. The Bible describes us at a place so beautiful, so restored. It's what we were built for. It's the Garden of Eden, only better this time. It's a new Jerusalem, Jesus says. It's a place that I prepared for you. A place full of mansions or rooms, depending on your translation. It's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And it comes like a beautiful bride. And there is the Lord himself saying, you won't need a tabernacle anymore. I'll just live right in the middle of you. And I'll wipe away every tear. And there will be no more death. And there will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. The old order has passed away. And he who is sitting on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down. Because this is non-negotiable. And there's a river of life flowing down from the throne of God. And on either side of the river of life is the tree of life. And the nations come to it and they find eternal life. This is what's in store for us. This is why the resurrection matters. And the curse is forever removed. That's the story of the resurrection. You wonder why the Christian faith went from a fledgling group of, of indiscreet guys, people you would have never heard about. We, you'd have never had an Andrew. We got people named Andrew. You'd have never had anyone named Paul or Peter. We'd have never even heard about them if it hadn't been for the resurrection that they went out to the whole world and said, you have a hope, an anchor that cannot be taken away in this resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I challenge you, come to know him, as Paul says, because in knowing him, you can know his death. There's a lot of suffering between here and the resurrection, but you will also know that resurrection. And if you've been united with him, when Paul says this in Romans 6, he's talking about baptism, which I want to talk about next week. But he wants us to know if we've been baptized properly, we're going to be raised from the dead properly as well. And so there. I just wanted somehow, as I was preparing for the lesson, which I've now had three weeks to do because every time I thought I was going to preach, something came up and I couldn't preach. I just thought, is there something, some way to... Like drive home the beauty of this, you know, words and words and more words from a scratchy-voiced preacher. Isn't there music or isn't there some kind of art or some beautiful architecture somewhere or some kind of philosophy or something that just connects how beautiful it is to know that this is your destiny, that, it, that death doesn't get the final say. 
that not only in Christ do we get a relationship with God, but in Christ because of the resurrection, we get an eternity with God. I hope that can't be taken away. And my mind went back to 1978 when I was 17 years old. I remember that because I just read a book. There was a quote in the book that really caught my attention, and I actually wrote an English paper on that quote. That's why I remember. I was a uh, what's it, freshman, sophomore, junior. I was a junior, third year in high school. The quote was from none other than the father of American literature, Mark Twain. Twain, who died, I think, in year 1910. I don't remember for sure. Some, I think, 1910. Twain, of course, if you live in the U.S., you know Mark Twain, so I, won't, I don't have to introduce him. What you may not know is that he had lost most of, it, most of his faith by the time he was in his 30s, and he died an agnostic, maybe an atheist. It made him really sad that not only did he no longer have faith in God, the God he grew up believing in, but his wife, who started out as a pretty devout Christian, she also lost her faith under his cynicism. And he never forgave himself for that, that because he was so cynical about the Christian faith, she too lost all of her hope. I read something that stuck with me in 1978, and I found it again. When Mark Twain stood on the edge of his grave and contemplated his future, this, the non-believer, this is what he had to say. He said, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for mean advantages over each other. Age creeps up on them. Infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them. And the joys of life are turned into aching griefs. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead. Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. And longing for release is all that remains. And then it comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. They die. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake, a failure, and a foolishness, where they have left no sign they ever existed. A world that will lament them for a day and forget them forever. And then another myriad takes their place and copies all they did and goes along the same profitless road and vanishes as they vanish to make room for another and another and a million other myriads all to follow the same path through the same desert and accomplish what the same first myriad and all other myriads after it accomplished. Nothing. I want you to know this man was wrong. He was really wrong. And he was not just wrong because he cursed himself. He was wrong because he did not understand that in the resurrection of Jesus, the opposite story is the true story. That in the resurrection of Jesus, there is nothing that will stop the child of God. Nothing, including and not even death. As Paul says, this is the grace Christ Jesus gave me, that he destroyed death and he's brought life, and he's brought immortality to light. And then Paul says, I was given an appointment to preach this. I get to be a herald and a teacher of this gospel. And he says, this is why I'm suffering, but I'm not ashamed of it. And how about these words to echo down through history? 
For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until the last day. That's the resurrection. We'll stand up and sing about it.